welcome to week 56 of 60 Week 60 Books, in which we look at the collected prose of Elizabeth Bishop. In 2013, after nine years, we had to leave Brussels as my teaching contract came to an end. Although I had found a job in a beautiful place, it did not feel right to be uprooting ourselves from a city which, despite Conrad's loathing briefly mentioned a couple of weeks ago in relation to Heart of Darkness, was so entirely our home. Eleven years on, Brussels continues to feel like home every time I set foot on the metro, in the streets and in a cafe. My life has contained quite a bit of upheaval and movement, continents, houses, cities, dear beloved friends, but I never felt a wrench equal to the pain of leaving Brussels. Fast forward to a point in 2015 when I opened the anthology of poems I had to teach my GCSE class and read with them a poem by a writer whose name was vaguely familiar, Elizabeth Bishop. The poem was called One Art, was written in 1975, a few years before Bishop's death, and it explores the uneasy relationship between art, love and loss. It is a villanelle, a complicated form for a poet, six verses, a skein of repeated lines and rhymes over 19 lines, playful and in this case, heartbreaking. There was one verse which I read and pretty much lost my grip. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went, the art of losing isn't hard to master. I had prepared the lessons I had set aside to teach the poem and picked its subtleties and music, its techniques, the points I knew the pupils had to make to get great marks in an essay on this poem. I knew the poem, and yet... When I read it aloud for the first time to my lovely students, I could hardly finish it for the lump in my throat and the tears welling, luckily behind my glasses. I coughed, I turned away and blew my nose, wiped my eyes, breathed in and continued. As Bishop ironically says, loss is no disaster. Bishop's life was packed with loss and one of the reasons that one art is such a deeply loved and remembered poem is not simply its brilliant simplicity, its intricate rhyme scheme, but because it captures the losses that we all bear, every one of us, as a natural part of our existence. Bishop was born in 1911, five years after my maternal grandmother, a little before the birth of my paternal grandfather in 1914 or 1915. It is strange to think of them as sharing a generation. My grandmother, born, I think, in Wales, was transported to Cornwall as a child, whilst my grandfather grew up in what was then India but became Pakistan, and on another side of the world was Bishop, born in Massachusetts and raised first in Nova Scotia with her maternal relatives and then back in Worcester, Massachusetts, with her father's family. Her early life was full of upheavals. Her father died when she was a baby and her mother lost her grip on reality and had to be institutionalised. Initially, she lived with her maternal grandparents and with her paternal grandparents and finally with an aunt, her mother's eldest sister. Her education was patchy, partly because she suffered from terrible asthma and simply could not attend through sickness, and then because she had to move between schools as she moved between families. This did not stop her from developing a love of music and getting a place at Vassar College to study composition. 
Bishop soon switched to English because she discovered she was terrified of performing live and soon began writing. The first works in the volume of collected prose on my Kindle are short stories and vignette about the places she lived. Thanks to an inheritance from her father, Bishop was independent from the age of 21 with a small but stable income that provided her with what Virginia Woolf so memorably condensed into the phrase, a room of one's own, essentially financial independence, agency and the ability to choose one's path. Bishop began writing whilst at Vassar, a mix of verse and tales shaped by her memories of life in Nova Scotia. Then, as she began to travel after leaving Vassar, accounts of the places she saw and the people she met. Once she had graduated, she moved first to New York and then to Europe, travelling with her sometime friend and lover, Louise Crane. You would never guess the turbulence of Bishop's life from her public prose. The poetry is more suggestive, but still contained. From early on, she realised she preferred women to men, and her love life appears to have been extremely chaotic. There was unrequited love, flings, flirtations, crushes, and longer-term relationships, sometimes simultaneous, fraught with betrayals and infidelities on both sides. With Crane, Bishop spent much of the mid-30s travelling, they made Paris their base. Crane was from a spectacularly wealthy family, her father having secured a contract to supply the paper used by the Federal Reserve to print currency, then investing some of his already substantial wealth in Otis Elevators and AT&T, fledgling companies that became household names. Crane and Bishop were together from the mid-30s through to around 1941. In that time, they visited Spain just before the Civil War started, North Africa, Italy, England and Ireland. On their first crossing from New York, they sailed on a German ship and were repelled by the Nazis they met on the boat. It would not be right to say the couple ever really settled anywhere, but in 1937, they did visit Florida and then bought a property together in Key West, where they socialised with, amongst others, the Hemingways and Tennessee Williams. There was much drinking and it seems to have been the time that Bishop first began to have serious problems with alcohol. As her relationship with Crane disintegrated, she drank more, to the point of passing out in the street on the way home. Staying in Key West and maintaining the large house she had bought with Crane became unsustainable, and in 1947 she sold it and returned to New York, moving a little later to teach in Washington, D.C. Throughout this time, she was able to supplement her basic income through her writing, producing a mix of poetry and prose that was published often, though not exclusively, in the New Yorker magazine. Her reputation was growing, but inevitably she was not as well recognised or celebrated as some of her male contemporaries, notably her friend Robert Lowell, Randall Jarrell and others. Around this time, Bishop also began therapy with a psychoanalyst, Dr Ruth Foster. Whatever the impact on Bishop herself of this therapy, the verse came slowly and she relied on prose commissions and awards to supplement her income and provide her with opportunities to travel. Funded by a grant from Bryn Mawr College, Bishop decided to take a steamer trip round South America. She left in November 1951, planning to return around six or so months later in the late spring of 1952, after having visited Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Peru and Ecuador. 
In the event, Bishop reached Brazil and her life altered irrevocably. Intending to spend only a few weeks in Sao Paulo and Rio, Bishop made contact with a couple of American friends, one of whom, Mary Morse, had visited in New York with her sometime lover and business partner, Lota de Macedo Suarez. Bishop travelled first to Rio and then to Lota's Fazenda in the mountains behind Rio, past Petropolis, Casa Samambaya. Thanks to an allergic reaction to cashew fruit, Bishop missed the steamer that should have taken her to Montevideo and Buenos Aires, and as she was girding herself to arrange passage on another, somehow one thing after another stopped her, including the gift of a toucan, not a creature that could be easily incorporated into her travels. Indirectly, Lota had instigated this gift as a means of keeping Bishop in Brazil, and it worked. By August 1952, Bishop had arranged for her possessions and papers to be moved from the US to Casa Samambaya, the home that Lotta was designing with the architect Sergio Bernardes. Whilst in Brazil, Bishop's writing erupted. Not so much her verse, which she continued to produce slowly, meticulously, inching her way through poem after poem, revisiting, rephrasing, recasting her deceptive verse, apparently simple, but delivering consistently layer upon layer of meaning. She learnt Portuguese, travelled widely around the country, produced a life profile of Brazil and was there at a fascinating and complicated time in Brazilian politics. Looking back, Brazil in the 1950s and 60s must have seemed effortlessly cool and amazing, a world of extraordinary design and architecture produced by Oscar Niemeyer, Lena Bobardi, the construction of Brasilia, a whole city, and Maspi in Sao Paulo, a world of glorious music later in the 60s from Elis Regina, Tom Jobim, Gilberto Gil, Caetano Veloso, a world of poets and writers like Clarice Lispector, Carlos Andrade, Ligia Fagundes Tellez. But it was also a period of upheaval and deep political unrest, culminating in the coup, which initiated a military dictatorship whose actions and their repercussions have still not been fully addressed. This I know from following in Bishop's footsteps, using her as my guide, as my family and I navigated the contradictions and complexities of life in Brazil. Our move to Brazil, two and a half years on, still seems serendipitous. Although my mother's big brother Johnny had moved to Brazil himself in the 1950s, of his three children, two are fully Brazilian, with their own families and lives in Belo Horizonte and Minas Gerais. Despite all this, it did not occur to me that I would ever come and live in, my, in Brazil myself, especially as we were chugging our way through the complexities of school closures, lockdown, lateral flow testing and vaccination protocols. But in the summer of 2020, as we emerged from lockdown, a headhunter contact me, contacted me to ask if I knew anyone who would be interested in a job in Brazil. Off the top of my head, I didn't think so, but one way and another, I found myself on one of those rolling walkways that carried me and my family to Sao Paulo in the late spring of 2021. Elizabeth Bishop was my companion.
When teaching a single poem for GCSE, students do not need very much context, but inevitably a quick glance at Wikipedia then had offered up the information that Bishop had lived full-time in Brazil from 1952 until 1966 or so, and then returning fitfully between 1967 and 1971. And that was how I found her collected prose. The sections I have read and reread are her visit to Brasilia with Aldous Huxley and his wife in 1958 as the city was under construction, and her translation of the diary of Helena Morley, an account of the life of a young girl in her early teens between 1893 and 1895 in the town of Diamantina in Minas Gerais. There are shorter pieces as well, translations of short stories by Clarice Lispector, accounts of her travels and her passion for Ouro Preto, another elegant mining town in Minas. Bishop's writing is at once vivid and laconic, closely engaged and yet strangely detached. Subconsciously, I absorbed much of what Bishop wrote and partly wittingly, partly accidentally have retraced many of her steps. We visited Brasilia, where her account of the chaos of construction on this hot, high plain resonated as we walked across scrubby land punctuated by huge red termite hills between the Altiplano and the enormous artificial lake where Oscar Niemeyer's hotel still stands. Our first visit to Ouro Preto was not a success. It was a day trip during winter. Much of the centre had been closed for relaying of the cobbles and we were in a small car, what my husband called a sewing machine, utterly ill-equipped for the vertiginous hills that make up the city. But later we saw Helena Morley's home, Diamantina, and were fortunate to visit Petropolis before landslides that have scarred the mountains that surround the city. Both before and after visiting places that Bishop had seen, I read and reread her words and marvelled both at the clarity of her writing and its lack of transparency. For as she was writing, Bishop's relationship with Lota Suarez was ever more volatile and unpredictable. Throughout their 12 to 13 years together, Elizabeth indulged in destructive binge drinking. She was often ill and at times unfaithful, and Lotta herself became increasingly depressed, thanks both to their faltering relationship, but also thanks to the considerable difficulties she faced in the great project that remains her unsung memorial, the construction of Flamengo Park in Rio. Eventually, Bishop secured a teaching job back in the US at the University of Washington, embarked on an affair with a young woman, recently married and with a young child, and undermined entirely the trust between herself and Lotta. In 1967, Bishop had returned more or less permanently to New York. Lotta had been very ill, hospitalised with depression, but she recovered sufficiently to travel to New York that November, and accidentally or intentionally overdosed on Valium, fell into a coma and died. Although Bishop did try to return to Brazil after that, it did not work, not in Rio, a city she never liked that much in any case, nor in Ouro Preto, a place that she had loved. After making her last visit in 1971, she was too busy teaching at Harvard, at MIT, to return and died of a brain aneurysm in 1979. Bishop's life and work are fascinating. She is the subject of numerous biographies and studies. Her poems seem more popular and established than ever. 
Her view of Brazil enriches any encounter with the country and its people, and she crops up tangentially in Breaking Bad as well as being the subject of a Brazilian-American movie, Reaching for the Moon, based on a Brazilian book about her relationship with Lota. What continues to fascinate me in particular is the extreme dichotomy in her writing. She captures and presents us with rich, deep emotional engagement, but at the same time gives so little away. It is only when you read about her life and her world that the strange alchemy between the substance of the events of her life and the quality of her work is fully revealed. A shy, defensive woman, working for success in a world of publishing and poetry dominated by men, at once she concealed and revealed everything of herself in her work. It is a delicate and absorbing dance. Join me next week for a look at a very different modern essayist, Rebecca Solnit, and her 2013 book, The Far Away Nearby, an absolutely unmissable memoir and meditation. <laughs>